We have a special privilege this morning. We have a guest with us who is one of the leaders in Acts 29. Acts 29 is a network or a family of churches that is spread throughout the world. There's about 700 churches currently with a few hundred more that are in process right now. And we are excited that we are a part of that network of churches. We get to partner together. Not only do we get to partner together with an organization, but what we really love is that we partner together with like-minded men um, to help plant churches, to support each other, to encourage one another. And then we get to partner together with other churches in this area too. And you might remember that last year when we had our Renew Conference, we got to bring along East North Church and Reconcile Community Church, and we enjoy being together with them. Actually, this morning we've got Will Broadus is here today, um, was with us from Reconcile with his new baby. So if you get a chance, say hello to Will and his baby. We are glad that you guys can join with us. Um, he has taken off, so we get him this morning. We're, we're excited about that. And then in just a moment, we get Brian. And I, I, I got, I've gotten to know Brian over the last year or so as we have been relating to Acts 29. And one of the things I love is that he is passionate about God. And he's passionate about equipping leaders, equipping men, and sending them out into the mission field. You know, Jesus said that the, the fields are ripe unto harvest. And we should pray to the Father that he would send out laborers. And that's really Brian's heart is to send out laborers into the mission field so that we would, we would be a part of bringing in a harvest for the work that God is doing to bring people into his kingdom. So Brian's been a part of that. He's got four kids. Um, he's a really tall guy, but you'll notice that. I didn't need to, to mention that. He's got four kids. His wife's name is Cheryl. He has a similar background. He was engaged in college ministry for many years, has been pastoring for something like 25 plus years or so. He planted a church in Charlotte, so he's not very far away from us, called Exodus Church in Belmont. Is that right? Exodus Church, Belmont. And then from there, they also planted another church nearby, I think north of Charlotte, called Exodus Church as well. And so he, he not only has a passion for church planting, he has been living that out and, and sending out and equipping and raising up church planters. So would you just warmly welcome Brian as he comes this morning and thank him for being here with us. Hey guys, uh, if you'll take your Bible and turn to John 21, that's where we're going to be today. Uh, so after that introduction, I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed and really don't know what to say about myself, except don't believe most of that. Um, I'm, uh, I'm honored to be with you, uh, and it's a privilege, it's really a privilege to be with you today. Um, I am uh, uh, the network director for X29 in the U.S. Southeast, uh, which is uh, Arkansas and Louisiana, everything east of the Carolinas and Florida. Uh, right now it's about 90 member churches, and we have about uh, 25 candidate churches, which means they've been assessed and they're in their process of completing their conditions to be members. Uh, our hope is to continue to grow and to see more churches planted all over the Southeast. Um, I, know, uh, I know that when you drive here, you pass many churches on your way. And so you're thinking, why do we need more churches in the Southeast? I see a lot of them. Um, and what we, what we talk about in Acts 29 is that the Southeast is typically uh, over-churched and under-gospeled. And so you have a lot of churches um, that are buildings that once potentially proclaimed the gospel, uh, and many times they are now buildings that hold meetings. And so we, we want to see the gospel spread all around the Southeast. 
so that we can engage this progressive secularism in many of our cities, as well as the conservative secularism in many of our rural areas. Um, We have a tendency to think that's like cultural Christianity. It's really just secularism with a conservative bent or secularism with a progressive bent. And so we want to see churches that can engage all of those in a way that honors Uh, honors Jesus. And we want to see churches planted all over the Southeast. One of the things I love about Acts 29 is that we get to be a part of what God's doing locally, but also a part of what God's doing around the world. Um, And so I'm I'm really thrilled and honored to get to be a part of it and uh, and really grateful that I could be with you today. Um, I've listened to your pastors uh, teach and preach. I've, I've, uh, I've listened to them. I know that you are gifted in their uh, and what they bring here on Sunday mornings, you, you receive from God's word every week. Um, and I don't expect that I'm going to say anything to you today that you haven't heard before. Okay? Uh, none of us are going to leave here going that no man spaketh like that man spaketh. Uh, that, that's not going to happen. Uh, but my hope is that I can be faithful with God's word um, in John 21, which is where we're going to be. Um, now, I'm a big fan of Marvel movies. Our families, we, we, my family, uh, we are all about that. Uh, Avengers Infinity War was on our calendar for like six months. Uh, we went to see it uh, the day it opened. Um, and so this weekend was a pretty significant movie that came out. And if you are offended that I like Marvel movies, you'll probably be offended by the things I say. So uh, that's okay. Um, uh, but this movie was a culmination of 18 movies over 10 years. Um, and it was great. I loved it. Okay. And over that 10 year period, one of the things that still amazes me about Marvel movies and those who attend them is that after 10 years, after 18 movies, people still leave before the end of the credits. <laughs> Every Marvel movie has had some snippet at the end. And every time people are still getting up and leaving, I'm going, do do you not know? Like, do you not know there's more and you paid for more? You know? Now, with all the respect I have for God's word, and I believe the Bible is God's inspired authoritative word. And with all the respect I have for God's word, John 21 kind of serves as one of those end credit scenes for the gospel of John. Like in the Gospel of John and chapter 20, all of it is kind of wrapped up. In fact, John 20, verses 30 through 31, John kind of explains the purpose of his book. And then almost like one of those end credit scenes, we get in John 21 this additional little vignette about Jesus and his disciples, specifically Peter. And like those Marvel end credits kind of tend to continue some character development and continue the story a little bit, John 21 serves that purpose in the Gospel of John and shows us a little bit more about Jesus and about Peter preparing us for the rest of the story. And so my hope as we look at John 21 today is that we would see something about Jesus that would be compelling. And if you're a follower of Jesus, my hope is that today you would trust him more deeply. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, we're so glad you're here. So glad you're here. And our hope is that what you would see in his word today would be so compelling, so compelling that you would long to follow Jesus. Now, we're going to deal with all of John 21. 
I promise I'll get you out before lunch, okay? We're going to deal with all of John 21. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 14 to kind of set up where we're going. Let's look at God's word. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And so they cast it. Now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just, just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? And they knew it was the Lord. And then Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let's pray together. Father God, we're grateful for your word. We're so grateful for your word. Thank you that it's God-breathed, that it's profitable for teaching, for training, for reproof, for correction, that we may be adequately equipped for every good work. We're so grateful for your word. And Lord, I pray that as we study your word today, that you would show us wonderful things from it. Holy Spirit, that you would guide us into all truth today, that you would give us eyes to see wonderful things from your word this morning. And Lord, I pray that as we see things in your word, that you would also allow us to see things in our hearts, see things in our lives that need to come in alignment with your word, and that you would give us grace, not, not just for our forgiveness, though we need that, that you would give us grace for our obedience, for we need that greatly. And Lord, that our lives would come in alignment with your word this morning in a new and a fresh way. So God, we, we come today because we need you. We come today because there's nowhere else to go. We come today because you alone have the words of life. So would you meet with us and speak to us through your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, again, this is uh, after the primary action of the Gospel of John has been completed. The eternal word that has always existed Jesus Christ, the one who was in the beginning with God, has taken on flesh and dwelt among us. The eternal word tabernacled with us. He lived a perfect life. He died a death in our place. He learned, he loved, he served, he died as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he rose again from the grave, all to prove that he and he alone is the Christ the Son of God. And John tells us that his purpose for writing his gospel is that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ and in believing that we would have life in his name. And so all of that action has concluded in the gospel of John. 
And now we get this, this vignette in John 21 that continues the story along. And in chapter 21, we're going to see three things about Jesus that are incredibly good news. First, we're going to see Jesus meet his disciples in their frustration. Second, we're going to see Jesus restore Peter for ministry. Then we're going to see Jesus call Peter to follow him. I'm a recovering Baptist, so I've got three points. Uh, no, no poem. Sorry. Okay. First, Jesus meets Peter in his frustration. Jesus meets Peter in his frustration. Peter's gone fishing, and he's taken a crew with him. They fished all night, and they've caught nothing. I think frustration is a good way to characterize what the disciples are feeling right now. If you've ever been fishing and caught nothing, you don't come home happy. Okay? And so to be clear, uh, Peter wanting to go fishing is not being disobedient. There's been no missional mandate. There's been no great commission to this point. Uh, the Holy Spirit has been given in some, in some sense in John 20, but we have not yet experienced Pentecost in Acts 2. So Peter is going fishing. Now, scholars are divided on why he's going fishing. One idea is that they just need to make a living. They, they need to eat. Apostles got to pay the bills, so we're going to go fishing. Another is to suggest that Peter's going fishing to escape. He's frustrated with life. He doesn't know exactly what's next. He doesn't know exactly what to do. And so he goes fishing. Either way, verse 3 of chapter 21 says, They went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And so if you know anything about fishermen, you know that when they catch nothing, they're frustrated. Now, in the midst of their frustration and failure, Jesus meets them. And that's really good news because you and I are going to experience frustration and failure. We're going to. We're going to. And so many times we think that when we are frustrated or when we are failing, Jesus is far away. I love here, Jesus comes to them. Jesus comes to them. And in the midst of your frustration and failure, Jesus is very close. He's not far away. He's not waiting on you to get better. He's not waiting on you to prove yourself. He's not waiting on you to level up. He is close to us. And that's really good news for church planting because there's going to be a lot of frustration and failure in church planting. I mean, some guys, and, and I love, man, I love what I get to do, and I love being around church planters, but so many times they come into assessment thinking I'm all that in a bag of chips and everything's going to be fine. I just need to preach and they'll come. And we overestimate our ability and we underestimate our need. And so the idea that Jesus comes to us in our frustration and failure is really good news. And the news gets better. Because Jesus does two things. First, he provides their need. Look at verse 4. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? Now that is an idiom that would be basically the same as him going, hey, buddy, did you catch dinner? You know, I don't, if, you, if you're a fisherman at all and you come home, hey, did you catch dinner? Is kind of a joke, okay? So Jesus is kind of messing with them here. And they respond, no. Now, I, I just think they probably said something else, at least under their breath. Okay? He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it. Now, they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. 
Now verse, 10 tell, verse 11 tells us it was full of large fish, 153 of them. Now if you read commentaries, there's all, rivers of ink have been spilt over what that 153 means. And there, there are people who kind of have all kinds of ideas about Bible codes and all those other crazy ideas. And my, my seminary professor said, when we get to heaven, John's going to come up to us and say, there were 153 fish. Now that's what that's about. And here's what we see, that Jesus meets their need. He meets their need. They went fishing, and he knows not only how to meet it, he meets it. He meets it. He provides for them. And so you have these men who are frustrated and failing, and Jesus comes to them and provides for them in a way they could never have expected. But he provides. Then we see John realized, okay, there's something different about that guy. They didn't know it was Jesus yet. They didn't know it was him. And then look at what happens in verse 7. That disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, the writer of the gospel, therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. Now some scholars suggest that Peter did this because he thought he was going to walk on water again. He put on his clothes. He thought he was going to walk all that hundred yards all the way to the beach. Verse 8, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they get to the shore, we see the second thing Jesus does for them in the midst of their frustration and failing. Not only does he provide their need, he invites them to be with him. Look at verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus, Jesus had already taken care of it. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord and Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. In the midst of their frustration and failure, not only does Jesus provide their need, he provides what they really need, which is him. He says, come to me. A friend of mine said verse 12 is his life verse, which is come and have breakfast. Um, and Jesus says that to, to these men. Come on, come with me. Just be with me. Sit down. Let's eat. So many times we think that what we really need is the answer to our frustration. We think we need fish or money or marriage or kids or do job, whatever, fill in the blank. We think that's what we need. What we really need is him. And Jesus invites these men in their frustration and their failing, come on guys, let's have breakfast. He prepared for their arrival he was not dependent on what they were bringing, and yet he honored their labor and said, hey, you guys caught some fish. Come on, bring them in. But he wasn't dependent on that. And so in the midst of their frustration and failure, he provides their need, and he gives them himself. And so I, I, I don't know your story today. I, I just drove in from the Charlotte area. I don't know your story Maybe, maybe you find yourself frustrated. Maybe you find yourself defeated, wondering what's next, wondering if anything good can come out of this moment in your life. 
The good news of the gospel is that Jesus can bring beauty out of whatever it is you're facing. Whatever frustration, whatever defeat, whatever failure you're in the middle of, Jesus will meet you there. And sometimes he'll say, hey, you need to, you need to come out of that frustration because really what that is is idolatry. And sometimes he goes, yeah, I'm frustrated with that too. But what he never does is stays far away and says, hey, when you get better, you can come to me. No, he says, come to me. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And we see that here at the end of the Gospel of John. We see that Jesus meets Peter in his frustration. He provides his need. He calls him to himself. And then the next interchange, we see that Jesus restores Peter for ministry. And this is really great news. Look at verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter. Now this is around the fire, all the guys hanging out. Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. Then he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And this, this moment of restoration is, is really crucial in the life of Peter it's needed, it's necessary, because a few, a few nights ago, Peter denied Jesus three times in front of a, another charcoal fire. We read about that in John 18. It was a public denial, and so there's a public restoration. Public sin requires public repentance. We see that here, public restoration. And Jesus engages Peter three times with the same question, do you love me more than these? And there's a few ways we can understand that question. It could be, do you love me more than these fish? In other words, do you love me more than the things I give you? And that's an important question. Do you love me more than the things I give you is an important question. Another way we can understand this is, do you love me more than you love these men? That's an important question for us because sometimes our relationships with others can get between our relationship with Jesus. But what most scholars, and I think most are correct here, is that Jesus is asking, do you love me more than these men do? Because Peter was the one who said, Jesus, I will never deny you. I will die for you. And so now, Peter, who recently denied him, is being restored. Now, Peter is grieved in the third question, it says in verse 17. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know everything. And he does. He does know everything, which is great news. We, we talk a lot at our church about this part of the gospel, that God knows everything about you. He knows every thought, every desire, Every action, every hope, every dream, every temptation, he knows everything about you and loves you. So there's never coming the day when God's going to go, "What? wait, I didn't know that. We're done. Like that happened in middle school and high school, right? You're, you're in that dating relationship, maybe in college, maybe as an adult. You're in that relationship with that person and they find out that one thing and they're done with you. 
Well, there's not that one thing with God because he knows all of your things and he loves you. And so when Peter says, Lord, you know everything, that's right, he does. He does. And so the take-home point of Peter's restoration here is that even the best among us need the restoring grace of Jesus. Even the best among us. And I know Peter had his issues, but he's walked on water. Anyone? Yeah, me either. Unless it was frozen. And that was dangerous. Peter walked on water. Peter was, the, Peter was the one proclaiming, you are the Christ. Peter's the one that in a few weeks is going to stand before thousands and share the gospel. And even the best among us needs the restoring power of Jesus. And even the worst of us can get it. So don't let the evil one lie to you and, and whisper in your ear that that's true for everyone else. If the evil one says you are bound by sin and Christ's power can't redeem you, you tell him you're a liar. Because Christ's power to save will not be drained in one ounce of its power by redeeming sinners like me and you. God's grace is greater than our sin. There's more grace in God than sin in you. It superabounds. It's not sufficient grace, it's superabounding grace. And Peter's restoration reminds us of that. But Jesus is not just restoring Peter. He's restoring Peter for ministry. Look at these questions. He says, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord. Then he says, feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my lambs. Now, Jesus is restoring Peter for ministry here. Now, notice that Peter's ministry is a stewardship. The sheep and lambs belong to Jesus. They don't belong to Peter. Notice it's a responsibility. He says, feed, tend, feed. This is work. This is labor. And this is the role of a pastor. To love Jesus and to care for, serve, lead, and protect those who belong to Jesus and have been entrusted to you as a pastor. It's the role of a parent. This is the role of a parent, to love Jesus and to care for, serve, lead, and protect those who belong to Jesus and have been entrusted to us. Parents, our kids belong to Jesus before they belong to us. And he's entrusted them to us to care for them. And we'll answer to God for how we do so. It's the role of a Christian in, in whatever sphere we find ourselves, in business, in education, in government, wherever we are, our calling is to love Jesus and lead, care for, serve those who have been entrusted to us who also belong to Jesus. It's a stewardship. Jesus says, feed my lambs. I don't know about this area, but one of the things that's fairly common in my area is for the church to be referred to by the pastor's name. So Exodus would be known in my community as Brian's Church. And I've told my people since the beginning of our church, if you want to wound me deeply, you'll refer to this church as mine. Exodus Church doesn't belong to me because Brian Lowe didn't die for her. And so when Peter is called to ministry, Jesus says, feed my lambs. They belong to him. And so Peter is being restored to a stewardship. Pastors, parents, Christians, wherever we are, we are called to steward what God has given to us. 
We are called to love, care for, serve the people that he has entrusted to us. And they belong to him. We, we just get them on loan for a time. And we're to be faithful with them as long as we have them. Now, notice the order here that Peter's restoring Jesus to. He says, do you love me? Then serve me. Now, so many times as Christians, we get that flopped, or we just replace loving with serving. And what happens is we get tired and worn out and bitter and angry, but we're serving, we're doing it. Jesus says, do you love me? Then serve me. And that order is crucial. So a really important question here for us is, do we love Jesus? Do we love him? And, and are, we, are we seeking to cultivate that love for him and time in his word, time with his people, time just remembering his love for us? I mean, Psalm 136 repeats this refrain over and over, for the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Are, are, we, are we swimming in that, drinking that in? So Jesus meets Peter in his frustration Jesus restores Peter for ministry, and then finally, here at the end, we see Jesus call Peter to follow him. Look at verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God, and after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now, Jesus is calling Peter to follow him, but it's more than that here. He explains in verse 18 the kind of death Peter's going to die. Stretching out your hands was shorthand for crucifixion in this culture. And John explains in verse 19, this is the kind of death he was going to die to glorify God. So Peter's going to be crucified. Now, uh, tradition hints at the idea that Peter was crucified upside down, but there's so many facts in and around that tradition that it's, not, it's, it's certainly not biblical. It's potentially suspect, the idea that he was crucified upside down. But what we do know is that he was crucified, just like Jesus prophesied. And yet Jesus calls Peter to follow him. And then it seems that that follow me also had a literal sense because of verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. And so they've been at breakfast. Jesus has restored Peter to ministry and says, hey, follow me. And they start walking down the beach. And then John starts following. Look at verse 20. The one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Now, something's going on here that is sufficient enough for Jesus to respond to Peter in a fairly aggressive way. Jesus has told Peter, Peter, you're going to follow me. You're going to be old, you're going to stretch out your hands, you're going to die on a cross for me. They're walking down the beach, and Peter says, well, what about him? Look at how Jesus responds in verse 22. If it's my will that he remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. So something's going on in Peter's heart here that Jesus engages and then reminds him, you're, you're to follow me. 
There's something going on here. Well, what about him? What about his story? I mean, my story is I'm going to die on a cross. What about, what about his? And so this call to follow Jesus is more than simply a call to follow Jesus. It's further a call to be content in following Jesus. It's a call to be content in Jesus' script for your life, not Jesus' script for someone else's. Well, what about him? He's not your concern. You follow me. So Peter, you be content in following me, not comparing your life to his. Now Jesus is engaging something important here in the heart of Peter. He's engaging this this incredible ability we have to compare ourselves to others and to breed discontentment. We see somebody else's script. We like their script for their lives, and we want their script for our lives, and we want to tell Jesus, Jesus, this is how I should be following you. Jesus, you're not doing a good job of Lord of my life, so if you could just step out of the way, I'll show you what this should look like, and it should look like his life. It's comparison, and it's killing us. Now, Teddy Roosevelt said, comparison is the thief of joy. It's true. One writer said that comparison creates this cancerous restlessness in us. It's the need for more, new, better. Well, actually, it's not the need for more, new, and better. It's the need for more than, newer than, and better than. It's not enough for us to have new. We've got to have newer than someone else. It's not enough for us to have more. We've got to have more than someone else. It's not enough for us to have better. We've got to better than someone else. And it's this cancer that's killing us. And our hearts have this gravitational pull toward it. Our world feeds it. Social media has weaponized it. And I'm not opposed to social media. I'm on it. I don't know why, but I am. And it's killing us. It's killing us. You follow me, Peter. Well, what about him? You don't worry about him. You follow me. Now, one writer said this. It's going to be on the screen. Comparison is the root of most of the misery we feel in life. Again, not opposed to social media, but if you read some of the studies connecting social media to depression and anxiety in our world today, it is staggering. Comparison is the root of most of the misery we feel in life. Comparison makes it impossible to view ourselves from any sort of godly perspective. It's an absolute snare for the soul. Consider what comparison does to our view of others. First, when we compare ourselves with those we perceive to be better than we are in any given area of life, the comparison produces a sense of inferiority and insecurity. When we see those people, they become reminders that we don't have what it takes and are falling behind. We feel we must toil and strive to keep up. Yet the harder we try to do that, the more we're caught in a cycle of despair. Comparison erodes our sense of worth and self-esteem, and it has a flip side. When we compare ourselves with people we perceive to be inferior to us, we're filled with a sense of superiority. 
The people around us become constant reminders of how good we are and how well we are doing and judgment and pride creep in. Those controlled by forces of comparison have unstable and insecure souls. Jesus says to Peter, follow me. Peter says, what about him? Jesus says, you, you, don't, you don't worry about him, you follow me. What, 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 Jesus actually said, what if his life's going to be better than yours? What if? You, don't wor- you follow me, Peter. You don't worry about his life, you worry about my life with you. Comparison kills us. Now, comparison doesn't just kill us, it kills us. It kills community, too. I mean, we just read about how unchecked comparison creates either superiority or inferiority in us. What it doesn't create is sacrificial love. What it doesn't create is a culture where people feel loved and accepted. What it doesn't create is a place where people feel welcomed and wanted. It creates a place where everyone else is an enemy to my joy. Because I've got to be better than them. So I've got to defeat them. Now there's lots of things we can compare ourselves about. We can compare our script to someone else's like Peter is doing with John. And we say to God, God, the script you have written for me is not the right one. I need that one. And then we put ourselves in the place of God and we think that we know what's best for us. And we use a word like comparison to describe what that is. What that really is is sinful rebellion. We're saying to God, you're not good at being God. I need you off of that throne. I want to sit there. I'll decide. I think one of the most dangerous ways we compare is about money and possessions. Now, I didn't ask if I could talk about money today. I probably should have, um, but I'm, I'm going to. Uh, and you guys can tweet about it later. Um, someone, uh, someone buys a house. And you walk in, wow, this is a big house. Do y'all need all this space? Someone buys a new car. We have an opinion about it. Somebody goes on a vacation. Oh, we have something to say. We don't know their story. We don't know if they've been generous or not. We don't know if somebody gave it to them. We just know that they are doing something we're not doing, and we start comparing. Now, as a pastor, that's just an occupational hazard. Like, I'm always aware that people are aware about how I'm spending money. In fact, one time a guy actually walked up to me. I just bought something new, and he said, well, I guess my tithe paid for that. I said, well, you're a blessing. You're just a blessing. And then I I, I shared this sermon once, and and I had somebody come up. Did that really happen? Like, what kind of question is that? Am I going to lie in my sermon? (laughs) You're a blessing, you know? I mean, I don't know. But I'm, I'm not talking about myself or other pastors. And I pray, man, I, that did not happen at Exodus. That happened a long time ago. And I'm, I'm praying that you don't treat your pastors like that here. I'm hopeful that you don't. And I'm not talking about how people treat pastors. I'm talking about how we treat one another. Like comparison around stuff and possessions will kill us and it'll kill us. In 1 Timothy 6, it's going to be on the screen. Paul writes this. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Notice it's not those who are rich. It's those who want to be. And so very often, it's not like this and this. It's this and this. 
I mean, you got plenty, and in the global, in the global economy, all of us are rich. But we, we just we, we want more than, and better than, and newer than. Paul writes, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Do you see the danger of comparison? There is eternal danger in our comparing ourselves to other people. It's a snare. And so here's another way to look at comparison around money. What if rather than having a, an opinion about how everyone else spends their money, what if we had compassion? Rather than have an opinion about people who have more than you, what if you had compassion on them? You think, what, wait, what? Roll that back. Yes, here's what I mean. What if rather than comparing yourself with everyone else that has something more than, better than, newer than you, what if you had compassion on them? Because people who have more than you are going to have to answer for more than you. People who have better than you are going to have to answer for better than you. Every square foot of your home is God's. It belongs to him. And we'll give an answer for how we steward it. Every dollar we receive is, a, is entrusted to us by God. And we'll have to answer for how we invest that for his kingdom. And so maybe rather than being you know, angry that you don't have what they have? How about you have compassion on them because they're going to have to answer for that. I was meeting with a guy one time and he said, Brian, I can't stop making money. I said, bro, don't ever say that again. <laughs> I mean, he's just one of these guys that God's just, and man, just blessed him with an ability to lead businesses and make money. And he said, no, man, I'm serious. I said, look, I'm, he said, look, I am death, I'm deathly afraid of loving money. Would you pray that I not love money? I said, yeah, but I'll pray for that. I'll pray for that. And so maybe we, rather than comparing, maybe we have compassion. And the only way we're going to have compassion is if we're content in following Jesus with our story. Because if we're not content, we're going to compare. And if we compare, we won't have compassion. If we're not content, we're going to compare. And if we can compare, compare, we won't have compassion. And so we need to be content with what God has called us to do. Jesus says to Peter, you're going to die on a cross. Well, what about him? Well, what about him? If his story is better than you, that's his story. I'm talking about you. You follow me. Ultimately, comparison and discontent is a rebellion issue. We think God has it wrong. We think we could do a better job being God than him. Tim Keller said this, worry is the fear that God won't get it right. Bitterness is the fear that God got it wrong. Peter, you follow me. Well, what about him? Well, what about him? That's not about you. You follow me. Jesus calls Peter to follow him. Family comparison kills us. It kills our souls. It kills our churches. And Jesus says, follow me, be, con be content with my script for you, not my script for someone else. So how do we apply all this today? There's been a lot. We've covered a lot of this, a lot of ground today. How do we apply it? We've got two things. First is a question. Is this, will you follow Jesus? Will you follow him? 
Now, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that many of you already love Jesus, trust Jesus, would call yourselves followers of Jesus. And my question is today, will you follow him? That seems to be the theme that's kind of throughout John 21. Will you follow, trust, surrender to Jesus in all your frustration and failure? Will you trust that he knows your need? Will, he, will you trust that he knows how to meet it? Will you, will you run to him in the midst of it? Or will you trust you and your ability to handle your situation? In, in all your sin and need for restoration, and we, apart from Christ, need restoration. Our only hope to be restored is the shed blood of Jesus in our place. We stand needing the blood of Jesus to restore us. So will you trust that or will you replace loving him with serving him to try to earn points from him? And all your discontentment and tendency to compare, will you trust that Jesus' plan for you is good and right or will you insist on rewriting your script for your plan? In all of this, there's two options. You trust Jesus, submit to him, or you trust yourself and be God yourself. Those are your two options today. And I'm talking Christian, non-Christian, whatever, however you self-identify. Will you trust Jesus today? Because trusting yourself gets you where you are. Trusting yourself gets you where you are. And there's this glorious privilege of trusting Christ who comes to us in the midst of failure, who restores us in the midst of our sin, and whose story is better than the one we would write. Even in the midst of all the hurt you're going through right now, the story he has for you is better than the story you could write for you. So will you trust him? Only one of these leads to life. And if you're following this one where you're trusting yourself, the Bible would say to you, repent. Repent and return to the lover of your soul who has the best story for you. So will you trust him? Will you trust him? And you'll only do that if you believe one thing. And this, with this, I'm, I'm done. You'll only, you'll only trust him if you believe this one thing. That Jesus is better. That Jesus is better. He's better than the life you want. He's better than the stuff you want. He's better than the job you want. He's better than the family you want. He's better than the career you want. He's better than whatever it is that you want. He's better. Jesus said, I've come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. So trusting Jesus is not settling. Trusting Jesus is better. And until we find our joy in him, we'll never be content. We'll never be content. We'll never be content to follow him. We'll always be wondering about that other guy over there. What about, what about his story? What about his life? What about his script? Until we see that Jesus is better, we'll never be content to follow him. But Jesus is better. I got one more verse about money, and I know, that's, I know we don't talk about that in church. I got one more, Okay. Hebrews 13, 5. Just look at this with me. It's going to be on the screen. 
Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Now, normally, that's where we stop when we think about money as Christians. Well, I, need to, I need to be content with what I have. I need, to be, I need to be content. Man, everybody else has better, but I need to be content. But look at what he says. Be content with what you have for he, this is Jesus, has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Now, why should we be content with what we have? Because we have him. Why should we be content? Because we have him. And he's better. Money will leave you. If you live through 2008, you know money will leave you quick. Stuff will leave you. It's called planned obsolescence. All your, all your tech, all your stuff will be old in like four days after you bought it. Your new car will leave you. drops 20% when you drive it off the lot in its value. Everything will leave you except him. And he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. So be content with what you have because there's nothing better. And when we're content with Jesus, who is better, we'll follow him. And so again, I don't know your story today. You don't know my story. And I, and I know that this call, this call to trust Jesus in the midst of your life might be a really hard, difficult thing. It might be something that you don't even want to consider because of how hard and difficult it is. My hope for you today is that you would really believe that he's better. And that when he says, follow me, you wouldn't look back at whoever else. You would just go, you're better. I'm following you and you alone. And that you would find in his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Forever. He's better. He's better. Let's pray together. Father God, you're, you're so good to us. You love us so well. And Father, I pray that as we consider all the things that are going on in our lives, all of our frustration and failure, all, of our, um, all the times when we need to be restored because of sin and failure, and Lord, all the times we struggle with discontentment, we struggle to really trust that you are good and that your story is good and your story is best. Lord, I pray that in our hearts that we would see you as better. And that we would be content with what we have because we couldn't have more. We have you. So Lord, would you, would you capture our hearts with this reality today? And would you settle us, settle us in a contentment that causes us to follow and worship you? Father, for every, every heart in this room that's struggling today with frustration and doubt and sin and discontentment and rebellion. We'd, would you meet, Holy Spirit, would you meet every heart in this room and draw us, draw us, some of us may be kicking and screaming, but would you draw us to, to a contentment and satisfaction in Jesus that will transform us for the glory of God? Would you do that? We pray. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.